0: Tuber, 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 man. Altitude 1600. I am Mark One, Bafta-winning director, and I'm happy to introduce the second Super Rocket cast. A novella written by a good friend of mine, Robert Samuels. It's called The I Am. After the fifth argument in seven days. Hal Mabry embarked on a full-scale retreat to the shed. He'd prepared an advance for this. Three kegs of premium lager, four cartons of Lucky Strikes, a four-tog summer duvet, speed dial to all the local fast food outlets and 90 days of TV listings. Any additional supplies would, of course, run the risk of interception by Mrs Mabry, also a 14 Clifton Terrace Finchley. But Hal lived on the edge like that. Coward! Stay out there for all I care, wailed Trina from the patio step. Hal paused, closed the shed door behind him and sighed. But soon, the clip-cop of Trina's kitten heels were rapidly advancing down the garden path, honing in on the shed door. He took a momentary gaze at his reflection in the dusty mirror, at his lank brown hair, his grey lifeless eyes and sallow, pasty skin. Over time, he'd coined a term for it. The Decline. How Hal hated the Decline. His 52 years had not been so kind, and his wife of the last two was now at the door. She didn't even knock. Kicking it open cop-style, Trina stormed into the shed, dispersing bits of door and splinters across the floor. Magdal was right. I should have never married you. I should have never. But her train of thought, it a sudden, unaccounted-for red light. For in the silent scene of interior, shed, night something was amiss. Hal had disappeared. He'd discovered the suit several nights before but didn't remember all the details. Upon finding his marital bed divided by a small Hungarian-made brick wall, Hal decided to take a stroll. Wandering about reason, destination or outcome was fast becoming a frequent pastime amidst the decay of his marriage. Sometime after midnight, he found himself crossing Trent Park Golf Course with a bottle of vodka and fell into a hole where it's 17th thought to have been. Jesus H, Hal mumbled groggily as he crawled amidst the rocks and broken vodka glass at the base of the hole. Brushing the dirt from his white shirt and dark slacks, he wondered where he was. He felt tired and hurt, his mind trapped within a daze of alcohol. But slowly, Hal began to amass a growing awareness of his surroundings. From the ground, A warm, low-lying mist engulfed the area. Wisps of steam escaped into the atmosphere from vents in between the rocks. In the light of the first quarter moon, Hal looked in every direction. To call it a hole would be a misnomer. He was in some kind of canyon, almost 300 feet in diameter, with steep rock walls. His eyes scanned the scene with a sense of unease. There were no excavation machines, hazard signs, barricades or vehicle tracks. Nothing but rock, mist and a faint sulfurous odor. But through the mist, in the distance, something caught Hal's attention. A small white flash emanating from the center of the canyon, pulsating at regular intervals. Hal trudged across the hot rocks towards it. As he drew closer, he could see that the light was mounted on the edge of a metal casket the size of a medium-sized suitcase, levitating silently at waist height. Hal waved the remains of the broken vodka bottle, above and underneath the object. There was no invisible plinth or fishing wire holding it in place. Its smooth surfaces were adorned with complex and precision-engineered symbols and engravings. In all his years in telecoms, Hal had seen nothing like it. Without thinking, he touched the surface. Instantaneously, the casket came to life. A slow, electronic beep from within started, increasing quickly and exponentially in pitch. How panic, stumbling backwards, a singular, piercing tone echoed definitely across the canyon. He clasped his hands to his ears, collapsed into his knees, unable to suppress or keep out the sound. He considered his death scene, alone and confused, with a broken bottle of vodka, flying low, trapped in a hole in Trent Park Golf Course. It seemed fitting. It took several minutes of distant sirens for emergency services vehicles. Car horns for the nearby A Road, and the soft breeze and smell of sulfur for Hal to reopen his eyes. Tentatively, he removed his hands from his ears. The canyon was silent. The casket lay open on the ground, with an interior light illuminating its contents. Hal rose, took a few steps, and peered inside. There was only one item a neatly folded slate grey jumpsuit. The fabric was soft, rubbery, flexible, and warm to the touch and across the surface was a raised hexagon pattern. There were no wash instructions or clothing label logos. He rubbed his chin in thought and scanned the canyon once more. It took Hal a while to ascend the steep south ridge. He coughed and wheezed for exercise at the best of times. At the top, he took a long look back at the dark void he'd left behind. From the well-maintained fairway, the rising mist and geology of the sloping canyon walls took on a different significance. That of an impact crater. Hal clung tightly to the casket under his arm and found himself looking skyward for answers. He knew what he should have done hand over his otherworldly discovery to the authorities. But instead, he took it to the one place that made sense the shed. On the Maybury back lawn, Trina stood alone in the empty shed doorway, her bright yellow two piece power outfit attracting circling insects. Impatiently, she tapped her French manicured nails in a state somewhere between anger and confusion. Seconds before, her husband enclosed closed the shed door behind him and on her. Now there was just an empty wooden shack with creaking floorboards and nowhere for a man of Hal's dimensions to hide. It was a disappearance worthy of a Las Vegas stage magician. Circling inside the small hut, she clipped her ankle on a metal casket immediately cursing in Hungarian. Trina hobbled back up the path to the house in just one kitten heel, hoping no one saw her in such an undignified situation. In the shed doorway, a metal casket lay empty and open. Anderson's travelling funfair sprawled haphazardly across the heath. An unplanned collection of second-rate, third-hand, semi-functional rides. In the moonlight, amidst the tawdry attractions, music and patrons, Nobody noticed a cigarette smoking or floating by itself. The drone of the rides and fairground music eliminated all natural noise. But from within the hall of mirrors, a piercing scream cut through the frivolity. Jim, the acne-filled ghost train attendant, was first on the scene. In the centre of the hall of mirrors, curled up in a fetal position, lay Edie, a frail French foreign exchange student, candy floss crushed beneath her ribs. What happened? Jim stuttered as he knelt by her side. Edie's eyes looked through him, filled with terror. Please, she said, struggling to force out the words. Get me out of here, please. Jim slowly lifted her to her feet, her hands clinging tightly to him. Over there, behind me? Edie repeated listlessly, as her reflections warped and distorted through the hall's dirty mirrors. Jim was beginning to feel spooked, but saw nothing but his own reflection. What was behind you? He replied. But mentally, Edie was all stop. Leaning against the helter-skelter, Hal wheezed out of breath. He'd run 50 metres, a Herculean endeavour as far as he was concerned, and his body shook violently, coughing black tar into his hands. The decline, once again, he figured. He reached for a lucky strike, but there were no outer pockets in his outfit of the evening. The jumpsuit, from the crater it fitted him unusually well as if made to measure but he had neither the time nor the patience to admire himself over there shouted several dissonant voices from the crowd outside the hall of mirrors in the distance Edie pointed in Hal's direction the mob quickly advanced across the heath Hal had no running left in him and very little walk either he ambled around the corner into the deeper shadows of the attendant break area an alley strewn with cigarette butts, styrofoam cups and cans of cola. The footsteps of the angry mob were closing in. Hal gasped once more for breath and reached for the small button on the lapel of the jumpsuit. Please work, he said softly and pressed hard. Hal and the jumpsuit slowly became transparent. The mob spilled into the attendant break area, shining their torches and mobile phone lights into the shadows. But Hal Maybury, was nowhere to be seen. Inside the St John's ambulance, Edie sipped water from a small plastic cup. A picture of fragility, her thin legs swinging under the chair, her large eyes focused on the floor. The paramedic had completed his medical examination and moved on to his accident report, writing ghost and filling out page after page. What you probably saw was uh, just a trick of the light, you know? No, Edie replied meekly to the confused paramedic. Everything all right at home? Uh Uh-huh. It'll go no further than me, you know. The paramedic paused, smiling kindly. Next to Edie lay an empty report sheet and a biro. Suddenly, the biro rose up into the writing position and began to glide across the paper by itself. For the second time, she found herself paralysed in fear. Vigard! The paramedic looked up, immediately transfixed. Letter by letter, the pen wrote, I am sorry, I never meant to frighten you. As suddenly as it started, the pen dropped onto the medical sheet, inanimate once more. Edie glanced at the words, looked at the paramedic. The paramedic looked at the words, then at Edie. Both fainted on the spot, their bodies clumsily sprawled across each other on the ambulance floor. Jesus H, said Hal Maybury, out of thin air. The morning after the night before. Hal woke with a start. Was it all a fantastic dream? The jumpsuit? The fun fear? Disappearing from Trina? As he lay on the couch, he glanced up at the back of the broken shed door. and there, on a brass hanger hung the otherworldly grey jumpsuit from the casket. Hal ambled over and unhooked it. He was interested in one thing only. The lapel button. He stared at it nervously, then pressed it. The suit quickly decreased in opacity until it became an invisible, imperceptible weight in his hand. He pressed it again, and the suit became visible once more. Pressing a lapel button on the previous night had been accidental. He'd never noticed it before. More amazing to Hal was the fact that Trina looked right through him as she stood in the shed door only a few feet away. Hal slid on the suit and cautiously walked through the garden towards the house, unsure of how he might word his disappearance to Trina. Slowly, he opened the patio door and listened. No sound or movement. Check. The patio door creaked as he pushed his head in. All clear. Check. He opened the fridge door to reveal a large succulent joint of leftover honey-roasted pork. What do you think you're doing? demanded Trina, standing behind him in an immaculate cerise A-line skirt and matching cardigan. How did she do that, Hal wondered. Get your hands off. Trina pushed past Hal, snatched the port joint, considered her options before defiantly placing it in the cat bowl. Hal felt a deep weariness sweep through him. Think you're Houdini, huh? Well, do you? So you've lost your memory as well? What do you mean, honey? You know exactly what I'm talking about. Just went for a stroll. Don't know how you miss me. Hal tried his best at normal. You think this is funny, do you? No. Not at all. You're lying. I can always tell when you're lying. Is there anything I can do right round here? You can think about that while I'm at Magda's. You're going to stay with her? Hal found Trina's sister unpalatable at the best of times. A couple of nights, maybe more, who knows? She looked him up and down. You still look like bloody workmen. I like it. Trina slammed the front door. Her bouffant unmoved in a summer breeze and stepped into a waiting cab. Tabitha, a Persian cat, attacked the pork in the bowl with zeal. Hal looked out into the street. Sunlight streaked through the window. It was a glorious summer's day. I guess it's just you and me, he said looking at the suit. Very slowly, a faint smile crept across his face. Tabitha paused to gaze at Hal with her large, suspicious yellow eyes. Hal's day broke down a little like this. 10.23 employs full invisibility to ride a southbound Northern Line train into town, unbeknownst to the driver, he rides alongside in his cabin. Ten fifty-five, takes a walk through Soho, confusing passers-by with perfectly timed kicks to their derry ears. The advertising exec with spiky hair, Ramon's T-shirt and suit jacket, gets five for extra measure. Eleven seventeen, takes seat in a female-only spa. In invisibility, on. Thirteen thirty, lunch. Fourteen nineteen. Spa steam room. Discovers the suit regulates his body temperature so he's neither hot nor cold. The Austrian yoga instructor screams, pointing directly at him. The steam has exposed his outline. He looks cloaked instead of invisible. 1419. Bolts into reception. Hiding by a fig tree, his large semi-transparent outline forms excellent camouflage. The Austrian yoga instructor and two burly spa managers run right past him. He makes two notes to self. One, steam and water can make him partially visible. Two, one of Trina's Renaissance Society friends has a far better figure than he would previously accounted for. 1530, visits the meerkat enclosure at London Zoo. Decides to hang out. He always loved those little critters. He didn't know why. 1630, leaves sizable donation in collection box and to Horace, the homeless man holding an alcoholic research sign. 1709, takes seat in a Caribbean center with a group of elderly West Indian gentlemen. Wearing suits and hats and playing snap dominoes. Feels at home here. The laughter and camaraderie is contagious. Finds himself fascinated by the secret world of codes, winks, and ticks of the domino community. And even laughs out loud. 1745. The elderly West Indian domino players rapidly flee, citing a duppy incident, simultaneously blaming a Ghanaian player for bad juju. 1746. Sits alone in the dominoes, discovers jerk chicken. Sweet potatoes, rice and peas. 18.10 has two rounds of seconds. 18.30 feels onset food coma. Takes a nap in a display bed in the window of the Kentish Town Bed Emporium showroom. 18.31 decides a memory foam mattress would be an excellent acquisition for the shed. 18.58 screams as a postal worker lands on him while testing the mattress. 18.58 and half a second, the postal worker screams. 1858 and one second, the Kentish Town Bed Emporium showroom worker screams. 1901. Wanders the street with a can of beer, some cigarettes, and not a care in the world. 1923. Is almost run over by a convoy of military trucks heading northbound in a hurry. 2030. Invisibility off. 2031. Sits at the bar of the bandy legs next to his favourite barfly, Keith. 23.20. Begins a long stumble back to the shed, sometimes visible, sometimes invisible, but never in a straight line. Sometimes he sings, at other times he forgets the words. The following morning the crater at the 17th was alive with activity. For the last couple of days and nights the army had been busy. A perimeter around a golf course had been constructed, secured, enforced by soldiers and under the arc lights, scientists in biohazard suits combed to the ground for samples. A chorus of CB conversations and computer processes swept through the site. Dead centre within the crater was a marigold-coloured tent housing the densest concentration of scientists. On the south ridge, a scientist suddenly motioned to a colleague. The colleague carefully trundled across, closely thanked by a lieutenant. Using tongs, he slowly lifted transparent fragments from the ground dropping each one into a cylindrical container with a red biohazard symbol on it. Looks like silicon dioxide, the scientist said to his colleague, who nodded in agreement. Silicon what? interjected the lieutenant, leaning in. Glass. Something caught the attention of the scientist. Wait a minute, he said, as he began to tug at another piece in the ground. You've got to be kidding me. He carefully removed the larger sample "'holding it up for all to see. "'It was not an alien rock sample, "'but clearly the neck of a vodka bottle "'next to a set of human tracks. "'We were first on the scene,' "'the lieutenant stated confidently. "'Right?' "'From the high hide amidst the trees by the sixth, "'the sniper gazed towards the woodland to the north "'and paused before looking again for his scope. "'Quickly, he pressed his talkback button. "'All calls, movement.' Tree line, 11 o'clock. Goal team, stay firm on crater. Over. Roger that, chirped the talkback system. Two snipers remained focused on the crater. Both unlocked their safety catches, curling their fingers around the trigger, scanning for any movement. The third remained in the high hide, joined by the Romanian soldiers focusing on the tree line to the north. From the trees bordering the 15th, an unusually dense fog began to roll in. It was low lying very thick and out of place on a summer's day, and it advanced towards the crater. The lieutenant pressed his talkback button. Sniper 1, send sitrep over. It's coming in real fast, over, the sniper grimaced. Roger that, keep visual, over. The lieutenant examined the fog through his spotter binoculars. It was accelerating, moving at over five metres per second, already engulfing three of the distant holes, and once within the fog, visibility was zero. Hundreds of startled birds took flight. Suddenly, within the grey mass, thundered an ominous, deep bass tone like a ship's horn. Clear the crash site! Clear the crash site now! echoed the lieutenant over the talkback network. The signal was weak. The scientists scrambled for their lives, haphazardly climbing the crater walls with soldiers coordinating the retreat. The fog was almost upon the crater and began to pour into it. A second, Bass tone boomed through the canyon, even louder than the first. The scientists and soldiers at the site clung to their ears. The swirling, low-lying fog had all but surrounded them. All call, sniper one, switch TI, over. The snipers slid their thermal imaging goggles on. I've got nothing, no visual, over. No visual, over. The fog swirled. Scientists screamed. All communications were jammed within the swirling grey mass. Those trapped inside found their movements severely restricted. Scientists and soldiers called out to one another for help, then suddenly, almost as quickly as it had begun, the fog started to dissipate, retreating back through the woodland. The sniper in the high hide stared through the clearing mist at the crater. He pressed his talk button, which crackled. But as the mist began to ease, communication was restored. All calls get visual on the 17th. You're not going to believe this. Roger that. I see it. I don't believe it, replied the soldier in a coarse rough. Where seconds before there was a vast impact crater, now there was an immaculately pristine 17th hole in the golf course. It was like it never happened. The sunlight beat down on the assembled workforce. The scientists began to walk across the well-maintained grass to the hole, prodding the grass with rods, testing for a mirage. Standing, By the 17th, in the glorious sunlight, stood a seven-feet-tall masked giant. The mask was of an old man's face. He wore gloves, a long dark trench coat, and trilby. He would have been hard to miss if anyone could see him, for underneath his trench coat, he only wore a dark grey jumpsuit with a raised hexagonal pattern. The giant moved slowly and purposely through the assembled mass towards the driving range, carefully navigating the scientists, soldiers and military police who were staring transfixed at the missing crater. And although no one could see him, he was careful not to touch a soul. Several hours later, another large man walked across the golf course in a jumpsuit. Hal was curious about the origin of the suit and how he discovered it. He ducked through the hedges and bracken at the edge of the rough and approached the crater in full invisibility, but there was no crater to be seen. The 17th hole was immaculate, the finest groundsman's creation. Surrounding it were scientists with some military personnel already pulling out. Hal listened in on a conversation between two scientists. The fog and crater's disappearance can't be a coincidence. Nothing else found, replied the colleague. Zero debris, no unidentified metals, just the remnants of a vodka bottle and a set of tracks leading to the centre and back, approximately size ten shoes. Good guess, Hal thought. He was actually a nine and a half, but had always found it difficult to purchase footwear due to his wide paddle feet. As for what was there, the scientist trailed off. Your guess is as good as mine. Just pray it was nothing bad. Hal stood amongst the confused scientist with an incredible feeling of freedom, knowing that he was wearing the only evidence of the invisibility suit ever existing. As the sunlight beat down on him, He wanted to laugh. He wanted to smoke a cigarette and felt a strong sense that a belch was timely too. Hal chided himself for his previous day's lack of ambition and embarked on his own version of London Open House. 12 noon. Invisibility. On. 1300. Strolls down the centre of the mall. Recalls the Michael Fagan incident of 1982. 1320. Arrives at Buckingham Palace gates. Briefly entertains climbing a drainpipe Vagan style before walking past the guards. 1327. Bypasses Corgis, helps himself to a cheese board, sinks several large glasses of Chateau Neuf de Pape, three bowls of olives, and some iberico ham. A feast of kings. 1405. Falls asleep on the throne. Not for the first time. 1440. Discovers Her Majesty the Queen and Prince Philip are not in residence. 1446. Eases disappointment by helping himself to an HRH lighter and matching new roll. Visualises creation of the Shed of Kings. 1500. Waits outside Downing Street next to two armed women. Follows the stern Minister for Education inside. The word egregious comes to mind. He doesn't know what it means. 1523. Stifles yawn within the Prime Minister's meeting. Feels a vast ham burp rising to the surface. Manages to suppress it. 1527. Intervention. Squeezes the Prime Minister's knee, leaving only one visible suspect, the Minister for Education. The Prime Minister furrows his brow tensely, trying to facilitate a brief pause in his rhetoric. Then the happily married Prime Minister discreetly reaches beneath the table to grab the Minister for Education's knee, and gave it a little squeeze and the Minister a coy glance. 1527 to 1528. (sighs) Ha! I knew it, Hal thinks. They're all at it. He's about to leave when he looks at the party whip across the table. A second word pops into his head. Oleaginous. 1529. Wonders what dictionary swallowed that morning. 1604. Leans against the clock mechanism inside Big Ben. Feels the call of nature and urinates in a dark corner. Considers his brownless freedom and wonders why he's urinating in Big Ben when he could have in Downing Street. 1622. Thinks about all the banks he could rob, but has no need for money. The redundancy he had accrued from 25 years long service as a telecoms engineer meant he never needed to work ever. 1755. Relocates to BBC Television Centre for the news at six. Sits next to his favourite news anchor. Is amazed to discover the background is in fact a giant projection and the room smaller than he'd anticipated plays out the entire relationship in his mind as she reads an item about the presidential elections in a tight pencil skirt. Wonders what she'd say if she knew he was there. Wonders if she would even see him. 1801, decides it wouldn't work out. 2130, sits in the centre circle under the floodlights after the match at Loftus Road. As the supporters slowly file out, realises that sometimes you never feel as alone as when you're surrounded by other people. 22.15. Strolls down Regent's Canal, considering if there's anything worth returning home to. Looks at the large nets at the back of the zoo, wonders if the people in the wealthy cream mansion houses opposite were really happy. Considers a visit and evaluation. 22.16. Walks past the lights, colour and goths along Walker's Quay. The sky is overcast. Cumulus clouds gang together in the east feel strangely sad. With the beauty of Regent's Park long gone, the towpath became darker, dirtier and more industrial, but invisibility has its privileges. Hal sat on a high wall overlooking the murky water. He was tired. It was a lot of walking in one day. Time for a cigarette. On the towpath below, a homeless man slowly wheeled a shopping trolley with all of his worldly possessions. The wheel squeaked as he pushed the trolley, which was heavily stacked with clothing and items, but over the pile, the man caught sight of two youths in their mid-twenties striding towards him. The youths altered their path to bring themselves on a the collision course. The homeless man shifted direction and halted when the youths held their arms outstretched like a greeting. "'What are you saying, Grandpa?' asked one of the youths enthusiastically. Yes, sir, thank you, evaded the homeless man, timidly trying to move on, his trolley wheel jammed in the uneven towpath brickwork. Yes, what? The shorter youth interjected. His name was Raymond Trevener, his taller friend Jason Cross, or Jay. What's your name? Jay growled. The homeless man tried to trundle on, but his path was blocked. I said, what's your name? Where do you think you're going then, eh? Jay added, moving well within his personal space. I am but a homeless man. Please. I said, what's your name? Osiris. Oh, what? Osiris. Where that from? Nairobi. Raymond began to sniff all around the homeless man. Jesus, you stink. He said with contempt from every fibre of his body. God, you really stink, don't you? added Raymond. Osiris looked at the floor with sad eyes. You need a wash, mate. Most definitely, said Raymond. Please let me go. Osiris replied, but he was not allowed to finish his sentence. Jay struck him viciously with a blackjack on the arms and legs. Osiris collapsed. Please, no. What business you got here anyway? Think it's all right being here begging? This is our country. Jay dragged him up and punched him in the stomach with such force that both feet left the ground. He yelped like a stricken fox. Come on then, Roman shouted, a shower of spittle engulfing Osiris's face. Hal felt sick. He pressed the lapel button to materialise and ran into the nearby street. An unmarked police car drove towards him with its siren wailing. He held out his arm in a desperate attempt to flag it down, but the car roared past, the siren lowing in pitch as it hurtled further and further into the distance. The street was deserted. A fox rummaged through an empty fast food box by a parked car. He gulped and cupped his face in his hands in indecision and wheezed as he jogged closer towards the colour and hamburger stalls of the main Camden Strip. Anybody? he shouted. It would take ages to get to the strip. In the distance, he heard Nava yelp from the canal. He stopped in his tracks, looked at the honeycomb fabric of the suit and pressed the lapel button meaningfully. I can't swim, Osiris repeated, his eyes red and tearful. Jay had grabbed him by the neck, holding him perilously on the edge of the dark, dirty canal. Dude, be quick! said Raymond, looking back and forth along the towpath for witnesses. Hurry, man! Suddenly, he heard a voice from right in front of him. Too late. Raymond's hooded top flew over his head as it snapped back from an invisible strike, dispatching him into the dark, polluted canal with a splash. Jay! Jay! He screamed as he thrashed through the water, blood streaming from his nose. Jay's eyes were wide with panic and confusion before feeling the sudden blow to the stomach Instantaneously winding him. He fell back onto the concrete towpath. Osiris looked around in all directions, cowering. Jay looked wildly in every direction as if invading an angry wasp, his breath fast, hyperventilating, but the towpath was clear. He gasped as a large weight bore down on his chest, pinning him to the damp concrete. Get, get it off me! He whined as he felt a hand round his neck. Then he heard the voice out of thin air. I don't want to catch you again. Do we have an understanding? Raymond, who had just managed to clamber back onto the towpath, looked back at his friend, pinned to the floor, then quickly surveyed all angles. Help! Jay called out, seeing his water sodden accomplice in the distance. Raymond stopped, took one look at his friend, pinioned by an unseen force, and ran as fast as his low slung jeans would allow. You bast! Jay angrily squealed out, but the pressure on his neck silenced him again. P- please, no! W- w- what are you? Hal relaxed his pint hand, the adrenaline coursing through him. He didn't expect questions. This was a time of action. He knew only one thing, and he needed something badass to say, something that would put the fear into the punk he was sat on. He glanced around at Osiris, and then at the towpath wall, covered in tags, fly posters for gigs and Anderson's travelling funfair. As he looked along the wall, he paused on a small yellow poster for Archway Church Service. Taking a deep breath, he tried to recall every Charlton Heston movie he'd ever seen. And slowly, and with gravitas, Hal Mabry said the following words. I am the Holy Ghost. He released his vice-like beer grip, leaving Jay gasping for breath, rolling across the concrete. Jay stumbled to his feet. Terrified and unsure of the invisible force, he fled along a dimly lit towpath as best he could. One arm held his neck. The other waved round the air in an attempt to fend off the unseen. Hal couldn't remember the last fight he'd been in, but he felt totally alive, shaking, laughing. He reached across and grabbed Osiris by the lapels of his ripped coat staring into the depths of his large, sorrowful eyes. Still with me, pal? Hal asked. But Cyrus looked for him. His weakened hands made an attempt to touch the invisible force, but just as he got closer to Hal, he stopped, and with his remaining strength, moved his heels together, then his knees. Then he arched his back, in prayer. Thank you so much, Lord. Thank you. I am but a poor, homeless man, Lord. I am but a poor, harmless man, and yet you touch me. What are you doing? Hal rapped him on the head. You touch me, then hit me. I am so unclean, Lord, so unclean. You're Osiris, right? Yes, yes, I am. You know my name, you know my name. Yes, Osiris from Nairobi. Father of five, I am sorry to separate from my wife, Lord. We fell out of love. Listen, I'm not that, oh, you fell out of love too. Look, I'm not him upstairs or any part of the Trinity. I'm not God. I don't even believe in any of that stuff, okay? I just wanted to say something to scare those youths away. Osiris looked into thin air towards the origin of the voice, then bowed again. Here, Hal said, his invisible finger hovering over the lapel button. He found himself wavering. He looked at Osiris, although hurt. Somehow, he was now defiant his large red eyes alive, full of hope. Thank you, Lord, thank you so much. From the horizon on the east, a distant and deep crack of thunder rumbled. Hal turned towards the storm. The sky lit up with lightning strikes. It is you, Osiris slowly repeated, his eyes wider and more alive than ever before. No, it's, no, no, it's this. Forgetting he was still invisible, Hal pointed to the button on his lapel then looked at the blood on Osiris bowed before him. Can you make it to a hospital? I will make it, my lord, I am certain. Hal looked back at the wall once again, at a small church poster and nearby flyer for the latest superhero movie. And he wondered. Thanks for listening. How Mayberry's adventure is just beginning the I Am Part 2 is available next Saturday. In the meanwhile, visit SuperRocketMan.com. Super, super, super. Altitude 1600.